This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Typically, what I expected, I pull the throttle to idle, you wait a half a second, neutralize the controls, and the heavy end will fall, the nose will be pointed at the ground, you're building airspeed, and away you go. When I did that, the airplane went into a spin. So there I was in an inverted flat spin in the Christian Eagle. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Mark Murphy. Mark is an ATP, CFII, MEI. He's got an IA. He's helicopter qualified with over 6,500 total flight hours. He's type rated in multiple warbirds, and he's got an unrestricted aerobatic qualification in several warbirds, including the P-51. Mark comes from a family of aviators. His father started the aviation and flies a P-51 in a helicopter. Mark and his two brothers are also active pilots. Mark, welcome to There I Was. Uh, Thank you, Richard, for having me. Uh, I'm happy to be here today. Mark, thank you. You and I were chatting the other day, and you had an interesting story about a flight in a Christian Eagle that you took with your brother. Do you mind sharing that with us today? I'd be happy to, Richard. Several years ago, almost 10, my brother and I were just getting into some more advanced aerobatics, and we had a a Pitts, an S1 Pitts. And I remember we would go out and we'd twist ourselves up and, um, you know, we've had some instruction, but you couldn't get formally trained in a pit. So um, I had done aerobatics in Mustangs and T6s, but uh, aerobatic flying is different in those airplanes. So my brother decided one day he was going to buy a two-place aerobatic airplane. So that way we could both get uh, more advanced training. So he started looking in his trade plane and... Um, he found in Ohio a Christian Eagle that was for sale. And uh, so we went out to Ohio to take a look at it. And I had never flown a Christian Eagle before, but had about 4,000 hours flying tailwheel and things. So there was no need to, in my mind or his, to, to have anybody teach us how to fly it. So my brother and the seller made a deal. And the seller took me for a quick lap around. And we did a loop and a roll and, you know, just some basic stuff came back and landed. And shook hands, and uh, my brother and I loaded up his new purchase, and away we went back to New York. Now, you felt pretty comfortable flying a Christian Eagle because 
A Christian Eagle is a lot like a Pitts. In fact, they were kind of designed to compete with the Pitts, right? So you felt like your experience and that type of airplane, that short coupled gear would be just fine for your performance. Is that accurate? Exactly, Richard. I was totally comfortable. And as far as flying it, you know, taking off and landing, there was, it just felt natural. So to take that airplane off and start heading home, neither one of us were really thinking we did anything. And I'm not saying we did anything wrong, but we didn't feel that there was any more that we needed to prepare ourselves for this new airplane. It's just, we're flying at home and, you know, we'll get more acquainted with it as you would with any airplane. Yeah, and your experience in multiple types of tail draggers and warbirds and your pits experience, you know, you did a check out with the owner and you got your feel for it, but you're relatively high confidence level here in this kind of airplane based on all your experience. Yes, based on all my experience, absolutely. So the confidence of, and I've learned now as I'm older and more mature that it's just another airplane is not always necessarily true. So, uh, you know, lesson number one is it's not just another airplane. Even though it looks like the pits, it flies like the pits, There's each airplane has its own unique characteristics. Boy, I agree with that, Mark. And what I have found also is I, I do a lot of Navion flying, and Navions in particular are different per airframe. So it's not just different airplanes that have slight differences like the Christian Eagle versus the Pitts that you want to be careful of, or a 170 versus a 180 or something like that. It's within the airframes, especially if you're going to do more advanced maneuvering like aerobatics or if you're going to do some IFR flying, those little nuances in how the dash is laid out and where certain levers or switches are can make a big difference. Exactly. And I had my 50th birthday this year, and I certainly... You know, when I was in my 30s, I thought I knew everything there was to know about flying. Then in my 40s, I thought I knew everything I needed to know. Now that I'm 50, I realize, you know what? Every single day, I'm learning something new. I mean, this morning, I did training in a B-25 for a new student that I'm working with. You know, so I'm the instructor, but I realize now as you get older that I have something to learn every single time I go up in an airplane. Yeah, that's such a great attitude to have in aviation. And that's part of why we all love it so much. It's never the same and it's never easy. It's always a little bit challenging, which is part of what the fun is. Exactly. So to pick up the story, my brother and I headed from Ohio back home. It was about a four-hour flight for us. I think we made two fuel stops because, again, with a new airplane, I'm always conservative on fuel and uh, they don't have a lot of range anyway. In each fuel stop, we looked it over, we checked the oil, the fuel consumption. You know, it was a beautiful airplane, had no issues at all with it, nothing to be nervous about landing or taking off. So I remember now, you know, that the day is winding down, and uh, we did our last fuel stop, and we finally got home. And this is where the story actually begins, in such an innocent way to start a story that potentially had such a tragic outcome. We were probably at 6,000 feet and headed downhill. I think on an impulsive decision, but not necessarily a bad one, I said to my brother, I said, hey, we're home. Let's twist this airplane up a little bit. That was my exact words. And what I meant by that is, you know, like, let's do a loop and a roll and, um, and land. So we did a few just did a loop, did a roll. I think I did a Cuban, you know, and we weren't 
really trying to maintain any altitude. So we're just letting the airplane sort of, we're doing some aerobatics, but we're letting our altitude descend as well, because eventually we want to get down. So we're doing that. And thank goodness, no one was on the ground. So we were not showing off for anybody. We weren't doing an air show for anybody. We were just two guys feeling out a new airplane. I think one of my lessons learned on this is I'm glad that at least the experience over wanting to show off, I think if somebody was on the ground and they're like, oh, Mark's home with the new airplane, there might have been that inspiration, I guess you would say, to do things a little bit lower to show off. But regardless, my brother and I were not doing any of that. So as we were getting lower, we were down to probably 20 I actually spoke with him this morning, and uh, he doesn't even like to talk about this story, but I think we were probably about 2,800 feet. So, again, it's nothing unsafe in what I felt my experience level was. So I pull up to do my last maneuver, which was going to be a vertical roll to a hammerhead, and then we were going to enter the downwind. And so I pull up, I do the vertical roll, and, you know, just look outside, and I'm where I need to be, kick the rudder, and... I got a little slow on the top. I mean, new airplane, right? So I got a little slow on the top, and when I kicked the rudder and fed in the aileron, instead of just the nose pointing back at the ground, the left wing tucked under, and we were basically just inverted. So, Mark, can I stop you there and help the audience understand? You're in a vertical climb. You're going to go into a hammerhead, and a hammerhead is where you go up, and you almost run it out of airspeed, and you basically cartwheel right on the same plane and come right back down the same line you went up. Exactly. And I think for a guy like me, you think it's almost one of the easiest and safest maneuvers. It's not a big deal. But at the top of the hammerhead, you're actually putting the airplane in a cross control. You're kicking a, you know, a left rudder. And then you're feeding in a little bit of right aileron just to make, as you would describe, the cartwheel. So the heavy end will fall, and basically you're just pointed straight downhill on the same plane that you went up. Okay, great. That's what you were intending to do, but you get halfway through that, and your left wing, you said, tucks under, and next thing you know, you're inverted. We are inverted, and, you know, I screwed that one up. Pulled the throttle back to idle. There really wasn't a need to, we weren't spinning, so there was no spin correction to make at this time. It was just typically what I expected. I pull the throttle to idle, you wait a half a second, neutralize the controls, and the heavy end will fall, the nose will be pointed at the ground, you're building airspeed, and away you go. When I did that, and I neutralized the controls, the airplane went into a spin. So there I was in an inverted flat spin in the Christian Eagle. And it developed fairly quickly. We did a, a half a turn almost instantly. And I, again, I didn't panic, but I was like, huh. And so I actually did nothing, no correction, no nothing, because my expectation was let the airplane just sort itself out, keep everything in neutral, and we'll fly away. Yeah, and you aerobatic pilots are especially good at this kind of thing where you frequently find yourself in unusual attitudes. You don't always execute the maneuver correctly. They're hard to do. So, you know, you're out practicing and you don't. And when you find yourself in an attitude that you weren't expecting, you kind of take a deep breath, kind of figure it out, neutralize the controls as a typical first step. But so at this point in this event, you're not really alarmed. You're kind of surprised, it sounds like. Hmm, wasn't expecting that. But you weren't really alarmed. Is that an accurate picture of where your head was at this point? Exactly. A hundred percent. You know, uh, no panic, no even concern yet. And so as the story continues, we went around two times before I realized this isn't going to fix itself. 
So what I did, and this is, I guess, mistake number one, and as an aerobatic pilot, you always look through, especially a biplane, you always look through the wings to see which way you're spinning. My head was looking up through the canopy at the ground. So it's harder to detect which way we're spinning when you're looking at it at that perspective versus looking through the wings and saying, okay, yes, the nose is going to the right. So I got to correct with the left rudder. So on the second revolution, that's when I said, I need to fix this. So I did a normal inverted spin recovery. And as you can guess, I went in the wrong direction. So I didn't do it on purpose. A lot of times when you go practice something, I know I push left rudder and I pull the stick back and I'm spinning to the left. I intentionally did that. When it surprises you, as I learned from this, it's not natural for your brain to develop which way is the proper correction. And you would think it would be, but it wasn't. So my correction inputs were the opposite of what I needed to do. So the spin increased in speed. What is the typical uh, correction for a flat spin? Can you walk us through those stick and rudder movements for you're in the flat spin? What are you attempting to do? You would go opposite rudder of the turn, and then you would pop the stick back in your lap because you're inverted. Normal spin recovery is the stick would go forward. Inverted, the stick comes back. And the throttle's in idle, right? And I think you mentioned that earlier. You had powered back. So throttle idle, rudder opposite the spin, ailerons neutral. And if it doesn't recover by then in a normal airplane, you're going to push forward if you're in an upright spin. You're in a negative spin. So the only thing different about that is you're going to have to pull back on the stick to try to, to, try to break the nose free. Correct. And so when I did this, the spin increased. And it got violent on us. And I remember clearly, this is where time started to slow down. And I started to say, okay, Mark, we got a limited amount of time that we got to fix this. My brother's in the front seat. It's so violent that his headset flies off his head and is resting on the top of the canopy. And I'm in the back. And I watched him, and it was almost slow motion. He reached up, and he grabbed his headset, turned his hand to the side, and just held it. Made no attempt to put his headset back on. And I was like, wow, big brother's in charge here of fixing this because little brother doesn't even want to talk to me right now. (laughs) 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 <laughs> Big Brother got him into this mess. Big Brother better get him out. <laughs> exactly. So um, so we're four turns in an inverted spin now from, let's call it 2,800 feet. At this point, I'm starting to realize I'm in trouble. I have never in my, let's call it four or 5,000 hours at this time of flying, I have never been not in control of an airplane that's not doing what I'm telling it to do, you know, I've had engine failures. Uh, I've had five of those. I'm still flying the airplane. I'm still in control of it. But this is where everything I'm trying is not fixing itself. And in a spin like that, you're falling, what, Mark, four to 5,000 feet a minute. So at 2,000 feet, you're now 30 seconds to ground impact, right? Probably not even that. As this whole thing developed, I don't think we went from playing around to really in trouble. I think it was 15 seconds, you know, 20 seconds. It was not long at all. That's where the fight in me sort of came out and said, no, this is not how this ends. This stupid airplane did this, you know, or I was the dumb guy that did this, but it isn't going to end this way. You know, I kind of refocused what's going on. What am I doing? Here it is. 
the first two couple turns, I was very gentle on the recovery. This last one, I'm like, I am going to make this airplane do what I want. And I kind of popped the rudder in the opposite direction and popped the stick back. And then just like all of a sudden, the nose is pointed at the ground and we're accelerating. And so as a result, you know, we talk about secondary stalls can be worse than the initial stalls. So as smoothly as I could accelerate and flew out of this condition, to the fact, without, you know, without exaggerating or embellishing, we flew down as I was accelerating. And again, I don't, I have a surface aerobatic, so I'm comfortable with this. We flew down a little bit below the treetops into the field that we would have hit if we didn't fix this, and then just slowly came back up. So we were, I would say, a half a turn. I mean, a half a turn, you know, you think of life in the split seconds, you know, um, it was probably a half of turn from one of two ways. We're going to fly out of this or we're going to hit the ground. There was no in-between. There was no, yeah, we'll have a broken leg or, you know, we're going to have to go to there. It was just you fix it or you're not. There was no in-between on this. And as we pulled up, and we're right over my house, so we just pulled up into a down when I landed in silence. My brother and I, we landed, taxied up to the house in front of the hangar, opened up the canopy, got out in silence. I think my brother was the first to speak, and I think his words were something to the effect of, I don't know whether to punch you in the face right now or hug you. I'm not sure which emotion I'm feeling right now. (laughs) Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year? and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force. AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. What's so impressive about that, Mark, is you're in an aircraft that's out of control. And as an experienced aerobatic pilot, you know that your airplane is never out of control. You may in some very specific maneuvers put it out of control for just a moment, but you know how to get it right back. You're spinning inverted in an out of control airplane. You're within seconds of hitting the ground, falling at four to 5,000 feet a minute, and you started this at about 2,800 AGL, something like that. And all the while though, you're thinking. You're not panicking, you're thinking. And composure, flying the airplane until you're doing what you're trained to do and what your experience tells you to do and you're able to pull it back into controlled flight and recover it. That's impressive mental composure. Yeah, it was. And here's the tragic thing that, you know, as we talk about now, I guess the epilogue of what I've learned from it and what my brother learned. One of the sad things about this story is if something tragic had happened, the consensus of the aviation community and, you know, my friends and family, they would have said, my brother had just bought this new airplane. He must have been flying. He must have been trying the aerobatics and he must have screwed it up. And then big brother must have been fighting to fix it, but he probably didn't have enough time to fix little brother's mistake. I'm man enough to say that was 100% my fault of what I did. But the tragedy, I think, would have been they probably would have said that it was my brother's fault of what happened because they would have just made those assumptions. Yeah. So as you look back on it, Mark, you're going into this hammerhead maneuver. Um, the Christian Eagle itself is new to you. But again, the flight characteristics very similar to a Pitts. 
So you go into this hammerhead, which you've done dozens of times, yeah. and yet you get a surprise reaction from it. What happened? That night, you know, my brother and I had a small little celebration of life. We didn't know if this story was ever going to be told or if this is something that we just, you know, out of embarrassment or we don't want to be judged by other pilots. Do I share the story with anybody or do I just keep it, you know, no one ever knows. And as I became a teacher and teaching other students and doing a lot of instruction now, especially in the Warbird community, I've changed my attitude to the point where if my stupid maneuver or my stupid mistake can save somebody's life, I want to be man enough to admit my faults and my mistakes, not to be a martyr or anything, but if somebody can learn from what happened to me and it saves somebody's life or they think about what they're doing before they do something, then it's worth sharing these stories. It is, and we're so grateful that you're willing to share your story, and thank you for, for doing so. I agree with you. That willingness to share stories and hangar fly and hangar talk is so valuable in aviation. So uh, thank you for doing that. Yeah, so the next day, we said, okay, let's figure out what happened. How did this happen? First thing we do, we get out the manual. And I'm reading, you know, the manual that I probably should have looked at before we flew this airplane home. And we got to the section of inverted spins and spins. And I believe there were four pages in the manual of spins and spin recovery for this aircraft. That's unusual for... I think any aerobatic airplane, but there's a lot in the manual about this airplane and its spin characteristics that I didn't know. And I I didn't realize this airplane, I don't know if this airplane had issues, but it had different characteristics that we didn't know. So under the inverted flat spin, it says this airplane in an inverted flat spin in the AFCG condition, and this is underlined, can be impossible to recover from. And I was like, an impossible was bold. And my heart sinks. I'm like, we need to do a weight and balance on this airplane. We got to find out where we were in the CG envelope. So my father, we were, we're mechanics and uh, we get out the scales. We put the airplane on the scales. We simulated the, uh, actually we had, we didn't add fuel to it. So we had the same amount of fuel, which we were low fuel. My brother got in the front seat. I got in the back seat. We put the little bag of, you know, not really luggage, but some bag of what we had brought with us in the trunk behind our head. The other thing that we realized is we didn't even have parachutes on. You know, you think about a big whoops. You know, we were flying straight and level. We weren't going to do aerobatics. So we didn't even have the weight of parachutes on us. But And my brother and I aren't that heavy. We're, uh, you know, both 160 pounds. And we did the weight and balance. And then my father was there, and uh, my father's an engineer, and he's taking the calculations, and uh, we plotted on the chart in the back of the book, and we find out we were not in the aerobatic category of this aircraft. We were FCG. Then we go to the normal category, and we plotted on there, and we're not even in the CG of the normal category of this airplane. We were just outside the FCG of that. And I said to my father, I, it can't be possible that we're flying just the two of us and we're FCG in normal category, let alone aerobatic. So we recalculated it. We verified that that airplane was FCG, not only the aerobatic category, but the normal category. So now I go back to the manual where it says inverted flat spins and it says can be impossible underlined 
to uh, recover from an inverted flat spin in this condition. And, you know, you shake your head now, and what happened yesterday, I think my heart sank even more when you read that. You know, now you're saying we shouldn't have been able to recover from this. Wow, that's a that's a sober moment there when you realize that. Yeah, it, it really changed how I thought about the assumptions of it's just another, you know, we've all said it, I think. It's just another airplane. It's just an airplane, you know, but it's not just an airplane. Every one of these airplanes that we fly, whether it's a Cirrus or a P-51, they all have their own little idiosyncrasies that we need to know. And it might be the fuel system management or, or something else or a flight characteristic, but it's our responsibility as pilots to know the airplane that we're going to be flying that day. Yeah. Mark, I'm curious to get your reaction to some things. A couple of traits in this event that we see sometimes consistently in general aviation incidents are two. One is, you mentioned, intriguing to me, that you had made it home. So you bought this new airplane. You're on a relatively long cross-country for that airplane. And you make it home. And so there's a little bit of a relaxation where, ah, I'm home. You can let down a little bit. There's the field that you see that you're so familiar with. And so you begin to let your guard down a little bit, maybe. And then the next event there is your decision in the moment to do some aerobatics. And that sort of, you had mentioned that impulsive decision to, hey, we got some extra fuel. We're here. Let's, uh, as you like to say, let's twist this thing up a bit. And so an uh, impromptu decision in the moment to fly aerobatics, and I wonder in hindsight your reflection on that. So two reflections on that. One huge lesson that I've learned, and my mentors have told me this, especially doing low-level aerobatics for air shows, we have a routine. I take 10 to 15 minutes before I'm going to go do my routine. I find a quiet place. I go over my routine in my head. I'm prepared to do this routine. I know which maneuvers I'm going to do. I have my parachute on. I have my fuel checked. I am mentally prepared for this practice or for this air show. We were none of those. If I had really not been impulsive, I would have said, wait a minute, we don't have chutes. We're not going to go upside down. And then the next thing is, well, what's our fuel? What maneuvers am I going to practice? What altitude am I going to practice? If I'm going to practice a new maneuver, I'm going up six, seven, eight, nine thousand feet. Because the saying is, how many mistakes high am I? That's what we in the aerobatic world talk about. Now, one of my friends uses a little bit more colorful language with how he says, how many (laughs) mistakes high are we, as you can imagine. But that's something like this. You know, in the Air Safety Institute this year, we have a seminar that we talked about um, why good pilots make bad decisions. And we took some books that have to deal with decision-making in the business world and in other uh, environments, and we sort of tailored them to how that applies to aviation. And one of the themes that we saw there in some of that research is there's this notion called cognitive ease, where you're just feeling good. You're back at your home field. You made this long cross-country. you got a nice, beautiful day. Your brother's flying with you, and you have what you think is an easy decision. Oh, I'll just do some aerobatics. And and at the top of your mind is saying, I've done aerobatics dozens, if not hundreds of times before, especially over this airfield. So you think it's an easy decision when, in fact, there's a little more complication to that decision. So you need this sort of system two level of your brain to engage to say, all right, hang on a second. Let's just think about this a second. 
do we have parachutes? Have we done the weight and balance? You know, all the other things that you, in your normal aerobatic routine, put an extensive amount of study and detail into. And that has implications beyond just aerobatics. We see it in the Air Safety Institute when people decide kind of on a whim, hey, let's drop down and take a look at this canyon, or let's drop down and fly over the river. And what they haven't paused to think about is the angle of the sun and flying directly into the sun or where there might be a hidden ridge or a hidden set of power lines. And all of those examples are stuff we've seen in incidents for accidents in the Air Safety Institute. So your aerobatic experience kind of reinforces something that the rest of us can think about these impromptu decisions, these decisions on a whim in the moment. You really need to pause and think through those. As we were going through all this and we're processing, you know, we, we decided to make a decision to tell Obviously, my father, who's my mentor and been teaching me, he's been flying for um, 51 years now. So he's my mentor, and we've talked about this. A few days later, one of my neighbors came to me, and he said, was that you flying the other day? I said, which day? Yep, that was us. He said, I've watched you for years because we have an aerobatic box over our house. So, we, you know, we go up and practice. And uh, he said, I've watched you for years, and I've never seen that maneuver. And I was like, which maneuver did you see? That one where you went below the treetop spinning. And I was like, where were you when you saw us? And he's like, oh, I was at my garage. And, you know, from line of sight, he's looking over his trees, you know, down a a half a mile or so. So when we disappeared below his tree line, that put us 200 feet maybe from the ground. And he said he did not see us recover. He only saw us spinning on the way down, and then he saw us as we popped back up to come around and land. And then I said, how many turns did you think we did? And he's like, six, seven, eight, I don't know, you just kept spinning and spinning and spinning. And he he was like, even he as a non-aviator was like concerned for what, like, what are we doing? Again, all this really ties back to what can we learn from this is the biggest thing is the overconfidence the impromptu decision, not even looking at the book of the new airplane that we're going to fly, not talking to another pilot that flies these and say, hey, does this airplane have any quirks that I need to know about? With the internet, there is so much out there that we could research something before we go fly. And then the other thing is I'm a flight instructor. Get a flight instructor that's familiar with the type of airplane you're going to fly or the type of flying that you're going to do. If you're going to do aerobatics or you want tailwheel, There's so many good instructors out there that can help all of us avoid these mistakes. Yeah, I would add two more lessons learned, Mark, and that is your composure under intense pressure and stress and the skills that you ultimately use to pull yourself out of that, recognizing that you were in a flat spin, recognizing how difficult it was to see which way you were spinning. And when it wrapped up, you knew you must have put in the incorrect spin control. So you used the opposite rudder and then the composure to stay with it and then not to panic when it came out and you're pointed straight at the ground in a high-speed dive and gradually pull out so that you don't go into an accelerated stall. I would add the composure there and the skills that you used in the very end of that is also pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, it's all part of the, I guess, the package of hopefully, um, you know, I've been flying 33 years and really in the last several years, my passion after this incident has been sharing with other pilots 
some of my experiences, I've had engine failures from different altitudes, and some have been total, where you just you have to fly the lousy glider. But I've really emphasized a lot of the, and I don't want to say aggressive flying, because I, I don't mean that, but if you have an engine failure in the pattern, there should be no reason why you can't land that airplane safely. But how do you fly your pattern? You know, we joke about the two-mile final. Well, if you get to an airport, you know, and it's a uncontrolled airport. Can you keep it tight in case that engine fails? And, and you know, so I've really emphasized a lot of that over the last few years with my teaching. Mark, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. All of aviation benefits when experienced pilots like you are willing to share your stories and your lessons learned so that we can all be better pilots. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's an honor uh, to be on your program, and hopefully we can make an impact towards safety. And, you know, if a story like this will help other pilots think before they act, then it's, it's worth what we're doing. An exciting story from Warbird aerobatic pilot Mark Murphy. And the big takeaway, I think, is preparation breeds performance. As Mark mentioned, just preparation would have likely prevented that event from happening. We're so thankful he had the skills and the composure to recover and thankfully shared his story with us. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm the host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. If you're enjoying these podcasts, hit the subscribe button and recommend us to your friends. If you can, consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thank you.